I think a materialist approach to things is very, very consistent with uh, my experience in Christian social justice. I feel like the, the deeper I get into anarchist practice, the deeper my faith is getting at the same time. I would hope that you know, securing means of life for all would be something all people of faith would say, oh yes, that's at the basis of what we believe. Those who are most marginalized know the most about the truth, good and the beautiful. To me, it's less that I think building class solidarity is a bad thing, as much as it seems like if you don't attend to things like anti-black racism, um, that's always going to get in the way of building class solidarity, actually. And when you go back, you find that a lot of uh, revolutionary grassroots participatory movements, the, the precursors to what you could call um, the barrio assemblies and these like, you know, grassroots neighborhood organizations, a lot of these were sponsored by the church. What does it mean to say that the Christian tradition is internally contradictory and there are antagonisms there? Um, you're always uh, being faithful to some aspects and betraying other aspects. Welcome to the Magnificast, the podcast about Christianity and leftist politics. I'm Dean Deloff, and I am exercising my freedom of speech. And I'm Matt Bernico, and I'm also going to exercise my freedom of speech right now on this podcast. Try and stop me. A podcast is like an exercise bike for your speech. That's how you exercise it. I'm glad that someone's finally saying it. For too long, people have been silent on this fact about... The similarity between podcasts and exercise bikes for speech. That's right. Cancel me if you must, but uh, someone had to say it. (laughs) Someone had to. And it had to be you. Um, So uh, let's see. There's there's so many things going on right now. There is actively a pandemic. There is uh, an uprising (laughs) that is basically not going to (laughs) end. Uh, There are murder hornets. There's a big bad storm the other day. That, that one, there's a tropical storm. I couldn't, I can't remember. <laughs> there, so many bad things keep happening. Um, but this week, there's only one thing that the libs are mad about, and that's cancel culture and the freedom of speech. Yikes. Yikes. You might have heard about a big dumb letter that, that got published in Harper's Magazine, which is a magazine I didn't know existed even because I am an <laughs> underread ding dong. Um, it was signed by all your problematic faves uh, or just problematics uh, like J.K. Rowling, Noam Chomsky, Steven Pinker, David Brooks, etc. That list got worse and worse as I read it. Well, I don't know. Um, <laughs> it was just it's all bad across the board. Um, anyways, basically, if you, if you don't know anything about it, it was a letter that was co-signed by all of these uh, these kind of famous writers cautioning. Everyone is a society, I guess, against being too quick to dunk and, quote, cancel celebrities for their bad takes. That's what the letter was about. Um, And it is an annoying article because, well, I mean, first of all, it's like it's like kind of famous writers whining about people being mean to them on the Internet, which is fun. Um, But also, you know, uh, it is trying to get people to, to just be less quick to to dunk on J.K. Rowling's for her like transphobia or, or whatever. Right. You know, people who mm-hmm. have um, racist and sexist and transphobic ideas uh, want an easy out. So they're trying to make the space for that. Anyways, all this guy's thinking, since this piece sucks, <laughs> is there a better and more <laughs> Marxist way to think about freedom and speech? This is the question that Dean and I are always asking one another. Is there a more mm-hmm. Marxist way to do this? 
Um, so in light of all this, uh, we thought we could quickly talk about how stupid this Harper's letter is and then run down some other approaches to freedom and speech and uh, and uh, the freedom of speech. There you go. Uh, but from this more Marxist perspective. Uh, so in the end, I think that what we'll find is that when it comes to any freedom under capitalism, it always serves bourgeois interests and finds ways to make an exception to or just circumvent the freedom of people on the left overall. We'll, we'll get some fun examples of that in a little bit that maybe explicate like what that freedom actually means uh, in capitalism. But uh, but first, Dean, what's up with this dang letter? Oh, man, so much. I should say, too, I should remind everyone, this is also a podcast about Christianity, and we'll get there. Don't worry. Um, <laughs> we'll get to the Marxism and the Christianity. Wouldn't you know, there's all kinds of stuff going on in Christianity about freedom, good and bad. Uh, but the Marxist stuff is always far more fun and interesting uh but you're gonna have to wait on the edge of your seat i'm sure before we get there because we got to talk through this harper's letter um i don't know the like the actual content of the letter is kind of irrelevant we can read a little bit of it to give you a flavor but i think the the general sentiment is not something that you haven't seen before uh this isn't exactly cutting edge stuff if you will (laughs) um but uh the cultural response to it i think is also interesting and also the way that certain signatories have tried to react to the the letter is also kind of interesting so anyway let me read just one passage from it and uh we can just talk a little about what it's actually saying and and what what that means about liberalism generally so the letter says our cultural institutions are facing a moment of trial Powerful protests for racial and social justice are leading to overdue demands for police reform, along with wider calls for greater equality and inclusion across our society, not least in higher education, journalism, philanthropy, and the arts. But this needed reckoning has also intensified a new set of moral attitudes and political commitments that tend to weaken our norms of open debate and toleration of differences in favor of ideological conformity. As we applaud the first development, we also raise our voices against the second. The forces of illiberalism are gaining strength throughout the world and have a powerful ally in Donald Trump, who represents a real threat to democracy. Um, I think this is actually kind of an interesting paragraph to talk about because there's sort of a lot happening and rhetorically, it's trying to pull you in a direction that you shouldn't go in. Don't be seduced by the siren's call of this bad prose. Uh, <laughs> maybe we could talk about a couple contradictions there and go forward. Um, I think one of them, just to get on the table, is uh, there's sort of a sleight of hand here, right? Because there's a, a promise, first of all, that these are all good people who care about uh, justice in society, and probably a lot of them are, right? Um, that's fine. Uh, but there's a uh, a sort of boogeyman or spooky ghost that comes up in here about this erosion of democratic norms or open debate. And that is something you might associate with maybe left-wing cancel culture. That's kind of what the letter is trying to get you to associate, associate it with first. But then at the very end, you find out that actually, if that's how you're acting, you're more like Donald Trump than anybody else. Um, mm-hmm. So this is, I think, the the sort of strange rhetorical um, move that's being made here. Uh, and I think we should not draw lines so quickly from one to the other, from A to B. Uh, Matt, what do you think of this kind of passage in the article generally? Yeah, I think that's exactly right to to pull out that uh, that weird conflation of the illiberalism of the left and also Donald Trump. Um, 
I think uh, I think what's really important about this paragraph is like what's being left unstated. Um, that's a I think a really powerful point of rhetoric is like when you can kind of just uh, vaguely flesh out a problem, but never really get to what the problem is. So you can let your audience fill it in for you. Um, <laughs> you know, it could be the left. It could be the right. Who could who could possibly know? Right. Um, that's basically what this opening paragraph does. Uh, it sets up a, a space where we can we can put our own boogeyman in there. Right. It's either the it's either the radical left or it's the crazy far right. It's one of these two, but we're not sure which. Um, Anyways, I think it's frustrating that. Oh, OK, right. So it's saying on the one hand, we have all of these conversations and movements going on for racial and social justice. And that's great. <laughs> At the same time, though, <laughs> we have to be weary. Uh, we have to be leery of this this new set of moral attitudes and political commitments that might weaken our norms. It's like, which ones are you talking about? The ones that will call you out on your bullshit or something else? Right. Yeah. Like uh, um, being uh, being intolerant of people uh, being transphobic is good, actually. <laughs> um, <laughs> being intolerant of racism is good, actually. And, uh, you, you know, um, you can't frame you can't frame people hating other people for really superfluous reasons uh, as like a, a point of debate. You shouldn't be able to debate racism. It should just be obviously bad and wrong. Um so anyways, that's what they're trying to get get rid of, though, right? Like, we don't want to be so quick to get rid of the norms of these democratic debates. We should just have an open um, an open marketplace of ideas where people can say what they think, and then we'll just debate them. We'll debate whether or not, uh, you know, people deserve dignity and respect. And that's um, some real dumb stuff. All right. So in light of all these big challenges, uh, there is a solution offered by this essay, though, Matt. And I don't know if you caught that. I mean, we've been talking about the problem, but uh, it's the solution that's the real key. And the way that these so signatories important. put it, it's very important, is uh, the way to defeat bad ideas is by exposure, argument and persuasion, not by trying to silence or wish them away. We refuse any false choice between justice and freedom, which cannot exist without each other. As writers, we need a culture that leaves us room for experimentation, risk-taking, and even mistakes. We need to preserve the possibility of good-faith disagreement without dire professional consequences. If we won't defend the very thing on which our work depends, we shouldn't expect the public or the state to defend it for us. Pretty ominous ending here. So frustrating. Um, <laughs> I hate this. Yeah, what's so frustrating about it? Why do you hate it, Matt? It just feels like some people who are really um, down with justice and freedom. Right. Um, it it sounds that way. But in fact, what this is asking for is a world free of consequences. <laughs> How can we create a culture where we as writers do not have to be held accountable for the things that we say <laughs> is what this is asking. Um, it's it's so frustrating because it's not like. Um, OK, as writers, we need a culture that leaves us room for experimentation, risk taking and even mistakes. Yeah, like um Using the wrong your is a mistake. Using the wrong there is a mistake. <laughs> um, you know, being wrong about something is fine. But like, <laughs> uh, you know, but being racist or being misogynistic or being sexist or being transphobic, uh, these are not mistakes. <laughs> these are things you're doing. Are you sure purpose. they're not experiments or risks? <laughs> no, I'm pretty. I mean, it's it's definitely a risk to stay it. And it should be like. <laughs> <laughs> It's it's ridiculous to talk this way, though, to like, don't, um, you know, whether or not you 
whether or not you like, you know, you think that uh, a pizza is a pizza or it's an open face sandwich. Uh, now, that's something we can have a disagreement about. But like, yeah, whether you think, <laughs> yeah, whether you think uh, trans people deserve uh, dignity and um, that's that's not that's not a disagreement. That's just like, are you a bad person or not? And I I think that the the point of this letter is to um create rhetoric and make an opening so that people can be free from the consequences of their words and uh no thank you i think i will hold them accountable still i will i will be yeah. the illiberal uh <laughs> cancel culture of the left because that is ridiculous yeah um i mean there's a very kind of immature notion of libertarian freedom i think that's at work here right like this is yeah. a, a paragraph that could be written by like i don't know a 14 year old who read Ayn rand and is in your creative writing class or something um <laughs> and that's not what you want uh out of the, out of all these luminaries but i think what's especially frustrating to me about it is that uh it paints a picture of a kind of growing authoritarian illiberalism that is really coming for uh writers um, you know, they they end on a note that we shouldn't expect the public or the state to defend these things. And like <laughs> the state is not um, targeting you right now. <laughs> I mean, Donald Trump is annoying. And like sometimes he forces like reporters to not be in the room or something. And, you know, we could talk about that. But even that isn't what's happening here. Right. Uh, Donald Trump doesn't care if you say something that's transphobic. In fact, he'll probably just retweet you. Right. Um these are insinuations that there's a, a growing enemy that doesn't actually exist. I think that is quite frustrating. Uh, I think also the the insinuation that writers are in a, a sort of class of their own is a really romantic idea that, frankly, doesn't actually matter. Um, mm -hmm. I mean, I don't know. I'm in academia, so I meet all kinds of people who think about themselves this way all the time. But it's this assumption that you're kind of entitled to the... Uh, the brilliant brain that you've been given and slowly cultivated over whiskeys and bourbons and whatever at nighttime, you know, uh, <laughs> torturing your, your inner soul to be able to write a great New Yorker piece. And it's like, I'm sorry, you're not that important, <laughs> especially if you're going to say something racist, you're definitely not that important. Um, and you know, that's really the, the trouble here. I want to say, so <laughs> I've been following, there's all kinds of, like I said earlier, signatories have, have gone on to say more about this, right? Why did I sign it? All that kind of stuff. And most of it's not worth your time. Uh, but the most kind of bizarre one, because it is also coming from a place that might seem like a good one, was one from Jeet here, who I think is, you know, he's a left liberal guy. A lot of Marxists don't like him, and I can understand why, but I appreciate him for who he is and what he does. Uh, and uh, he signed it and his reasoning that he said on Twitter was um, he doesn't uh, like that cancel culture means basically throwing uh, people into a really precarious workforce because um, there's no safety net to catch them if they just get fired all of a sudden, which is true. And that's bad, right? Like your healthcare shouldn't be tied to your job, all that kind of stuff. But at the end of the day, first of all, that's not really what's going on here, right? That's that's not the concern. Um, I don't think at least not what the letter is after. And secondly, uh, I have to say as a person who is a very precarious writer and who is already out amongst the wolves, uh, nobody is um, affirming my free speech by giving me a lot of money and airtime to say whatever dumb stuff I want to say. <laughs> so uh, in that sense, the concern just sort of falls flat, right? Like even the best defense of it, I think just sort of doesn't hold up. So um, at the end of the day, I think what really comes through here for me, at least, is something that is centered on a really 
um, adolescent understanding of freedom, right? Just a, an idea of what people are entitled to that doesn't really have any kind of bearing on our actual experience in the world. And so the big question is, why invoke that kind of freedom? If it's not reflective of something in real life, then what's the sort of strategic work that it does? That's the rhetorical question I think I'm always invested in. Yeah, that's good. Um, that's a good explanation of kind of like what's going on and why this is so silly. Well, um, this podcast is here to tell you that <laughs> um, both Marxists and also Christians, this extremely bizarre intersection that we've created, have some bigger and more interesting ideas about freedom and like what it's all about. Um, so to get at some of those big ideas, Dean, I'm going to tell you something that's going to flip your whole world upside down. <laughs> oh, I'm ready. This uh, sounds like okay. a real risk that you're taking. <laughs> yeah, I hope I don't get canceled for it. Uh, so J.K. Rowling, Noam Chomsky, Stephen Pinker, David Brooks, all these people, they're really concerned about free speech. But guess who else was once concerned about free speech? The IWW. Oh, my gosh. Can you believe Whoa. that? I know. <laughs> I know. Um, if I wasn't already canceled, I bet somebody would uh, pay me to write a big think piece about this one. Um, so here's something you might not know. The IWW in the early 1900s were just embroiled in these things called the free speech fights where. Uh, well, here, I'll just read this excerpt. So this is from a book. Uh, wait, wait, wait. Let me even back you up further. Can you just explain who the IWW even are? Oh, right. I forgot. If you're a first time listener to this podcast, the IWW is an acronym for the Industrial Workers of the <laughs> World, uh, which is a extremely radical uh, labor union that started in 1905 and uh, was really pretty big in the early 1900s, but then uh, waned in popularity due to a lot of reasons that we don't need to talk about right now. Um, in uh, In a book, called Wobblies of the World, written by Peter Cole and David Struthers are the editors. It's kind of like a collection of essays about um, the IWW around the world. Um, they they give this cool explanation. Um, it's really, um, really to the point explanation of IWW and like why they were interested in free speech and like what's going on there. So I'm going to read this excerpt from their book that will help kind of explain um, what's going on and why the IW what the IWW and JK Rowling has in common. That's my clickbait <laughs> heading for this, uh, for this one. <laughs> okay. Right. It's actually nothing, but, but here we go. So uh, Peter Cole and David Struthers, they write this, the IWW's free speech fights proved among the most noteworthy chapters in its U S history. The first broke out in 1909, in Spokane, Washington, an important employment center in the Pacific Northwest for migratory workers in timber, agriculture, and construction. Many laborers wintered in Spokane until work picked up in the spring, but employment sharks preyed on these workers by collaborating with employers by charging fees for jobs. In response, wobbly street speakers in Spokane urged workers to boycott the sharks and force employers to hire workers directly without fees. Uh, and then it goes on to say a little bit later, the IWW announced its first free speech fight um, when the industrial worker, which was their newspaper, announced wanted men to fill the jails of Spokane. <laughs> That's a good, <laughs> a good ad. Um, so sure enough, footloose wobblies. Footloose wobblies meant uh, like migratory wobblies. The, the, the wobblies without uh, a, a, just one center of place to call home. Uh, people who are riding the rails and living that good, that good lifestyle. Uh, footloose wobblies traveled to Spokane and deliberately broke this law. Uh, the law was that... Uh, um, uh, that uh, labor organizers couldn't uh, couldn't show up in Spokane and try to boycott the sharks. Um, 
So uh, they they went to Spokane. They deliberately broke the law, and the city arrested them. 500 in the first month. After four months of beatings and arrests with the jails overflowing the IWW won, all its members were released from prison. The ordinance was overturned, and the licenses of sharks were revoked. So despite the victory, other cities copied Spokane's repressive efforts, and some of these cities beat back the IWW's organizing efforts. But these types of free speech fights would kind of crop up all, all over the place, right? These cities would, um, you know, have these like very predatory hiring practices of, of exploiting workers and, uh, you know, basically ripping them off. And the Wobblies would show up and they would pull out their soapbox and they would get up in the middle of the street and tell everyone how they should, you know, boycott the Sharks. They should join a union, all this kind of stuff. Join the IWW. And um, that soapboxing was illegal in Spokane and it would be illegal in a lot of other places. So they would get thrown in jail. But... <laughs> The sort of uh, the the wobbly tactic was that the IWW tactic wobblies is a is a nickname for the IWW in case you didn't know uh, the IWW tactic was just like, OK, if they're going to arrest us, fine. Then like, how about we just all come here? And they all did. Um, they just flooded the jails. Too many, too many, uh, too many of these IWW organizers showing up and uh, and just jamming the whole thing up. And in the end, they won. Uh, but anyways, like I said, this this is like the first of other spree, uh, free speech fights where this kind of thing would happen. Um, but it's kind of an interesting thing, right? Where, um, uh, you know, speech is actually being censored in this like, you know, it, it's not cancel culture, but it's like, you know, you're going to go to jail. <laughs> you're going to go to jail if you try to organize a union here. It's a little bit different, I think, than J.K. Rowling's situation. But uh, I think it's kind of an interesting, uh, interesting thing, right? That they're in that they really uh, that that free speech is is good um, when it's when it's used for something good. Uh, but um, you know the governments of well, in this case Spokane, but other places too, don't have any problem shutting you down if you're uh, if you're trying to stir up trouble, right? If you're if you're trying to um, if you're trying to really throw um, the the bourgeois order of things into question, that's when uh, free speech is okay to be infringed upon. Yeah. I mean, the left in the United States, I think, always has a really interesting and complicated relationship to law and to the Constitution and the rights that people are guaranteed, etc. Um, we can talk about some other examples in a minute, I guess. But uh, what I always find so fascinating about the Wobblies uh, and the free speech fights is that they're basically, I think, calling the bluff of liberalism because the, uh, you know, a liberal will hear the story and say, like, yes, but look. They've appealed to the constitutional protection and it worked. They did it. Uh, but in fact, what the IWW did is they got a bunch of people to go to jail <laughs> and created a big problem. And right. the constitution uh, didn't matter in this sense. It didn't matter. Yeah, at all. exactly. It, who cares? Yeah, the constitution could have said anything. And at the end of the day, they would have had a big, big problem to solve a social problem uh, because of the organizing. And I think that's really the key is the the sort of front facing message is is a bit playful, kind of a joke, right? Like, yeah, this is just a fight for free speech. I don't know. Um, but in reality, it's a fight for a lot more than that. Right. Um, the IWW did kind of the same thing with the re religion that I find really funny. Like they would go to jail. And if you go to jail, the they would ask you, what's your religion? And they would say the IWW. And then they would try to play that off as like a, a way to get like religious freedom and their religion is based around like getting people to strike. So, again, just like very funny and silly. Um, but that's what's so great about it. There, there's a seriousness there, right? They're tapping into something that is a legal mechanism that could be strategically uh, deployed. But uh, there's more happening. Um, I don't know. I love that stuff. I love how goofy the Wobblies are. Yeah, totally. 
um, they're goofy and uh, strategic and very smart in the end. And also like just willing to throw it all down, right? Like yeah, <laughs> that a bunch of people just show up and be willing to get, get arrested is uh, wild. I mean, that's it's just cool. It's just like these Harper's Letter signatories who are willing to go to Twitter jail over their conviction. <laughs> Not even Twitter jail, just cancel jail. Just like it's just an imaginary yeah. kind of thing that they have made up themselves that they have to go. That's to right. When we get mad. At them. Yeah. Th- this Harper's uh, essay or open letter could have just said uh, wanted people to fill the canceled jails and uh, all these people showed up. So pretty much the same thing. That's right. Uh, <laughs> the Harper's about... letter is the jail, if you think about it, because like these people, yeah, they're, they've been canceled by it. <laughs> That's right. Um, I want to talk about another example that just kind of is not about speech, but illustrates the same general point or theme here. And that is the Black Panther Party. Um, another really great example, if you're looking for like people who call the bluff of liberalism, um, the Black Panther Party was started in the late 60s by Huey P. Newton and Bobby Seale and some other folks. And uh, what I love about them, which I think is sometimes an underplayed aspect of them, is that Huey P. Newton actually had a bachelor's degree in law and um, was pretty gifted at understanding the law, actually. Um, And uh, some of the things that the Panthers did were really, really based in, um, again, calling the bluff of American liberalism. Uh, The most famous one is gun rights, right? So if you see a picture of the Panthers or you know anything about them, probably the most famous thing is that they have leather jackets and they carry around big guns. And uh, those guns they had so that they could do cop watches and, uh, you know, they they rooted it in the constitutional right to bear arms. That was the idea. So the premise was if if you feel threatened by the state, the government gives you a legal mechanism by which you can defend yourself. And that's what black communities needed in California, they said. So that's just what they'll do. Um, What's so fascinating about this is it didn't really take long for uh, Republicans, (laughs) the classic defenders of gun laws, to turn on the Panthers uh, and abandon that freedom. So in 1967, there was a famous um, act called the Mulford Act that was passed um in uh california that um repealed uh, a law that allowed people to carry guns um publicly and uh it was named after this guy um don mulford who was a republican uh but also uh, ronald reagan signed it into law he was the governor of california at the time and what i think is so fascinating about that sort of story is that reagan ends up being the hero of libertine libertarian notions of freedom in the 80s as the president uh, but in 67, he is using his political authority to actually restrict somebody's constitutional freedoms because this is a case of people who are not the ruling class having the means to defend themselves. And the story really dramatizes, I think, that liberal freedoms matter until they actually matter, right? They mm-hmm. they matter as a way of um, shoring up the authority of the ruling class. But uh, if things really get serious, uh, they don't really matter in a significant way, or at least they don't matter until it's too late. Um, Just to sort of drive the point home, uh, the Panthers, if you read their literature, you know, you'll you'll definitely find all kinds of good, good stuff about Marxism and Leninism and all the rest of it. But there's a really, really interesting thread where the Panthers draw, again, sort of playfully on the U.S. political tradition And if you read, for example, the uh, 1966 party program, a lot of it is literally just appealing to like the U.S. Constitution. (laughs) Like uh, there's a bit in it where they. Yeah. All right. I have it in front of me. Um, 
6.9 in the program is they say we want all black people when brought to trial to be tried in court by a jury of their peer group or people from the black communities as defined by the Constitution of the United States. Um, they go on to say more about that, but they root it directly in the 14th Amendment. Um, they talk again about the Second Amendment and the right to bear arms elsewhere. Uh, they close the uh, the whole program saying that uh, they hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, endowed by their creator, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, directly quoting from all these revolutionary documents of the American Revolution. And uh, all that to say, I think what the Panthers reveal is that um, the U.S. is built on all kinds of notions of liberal freedom, but uh, it actually operates much differently. And if you try to push those notions in a revolutionary direction, uh, you'll discover that actually they're not there to protect you. So all that to say, to bring it back to the Harper's thing, I think it just sort of casts doubt on whether or not these uh, you know, lofty noble truths, in fact, are uh, universal and whether or not they should be even. Yeah, totally. I think that's a it it does explicate the whole situation right like uh just it shows you how they work and where they break down it's pretty good man I just, when you're reading that uh the stuff from the panther uh panther party program it's just like it would never even occur to me to think about the constitution with regards to politics i don't know <laughs> maybe i'm like so much of a cynic or like maybe just like too stupid to realize but like i just would never even like oh yeah the constitution is a political uh has political ideas in it i it's beyond me sometimes. I forget about that <laughs> altogether. Yeah, um, I mean, it makes sense. <laughs> yeah, I guess so. I guess I just like I just have such a low expectation um, <laughs> that that any of those things would be enforced. Um, right. Uh, but I'll uh, maybe. Yeah, I, I don't get I don't get that kind of stuff. It doesn't it doesn't work in my brain because of my weird imagination. But the things that do uh, mostly come from Karl Marx. So let's talk about Marx and freedom. <laughs> Yeah, so let's transition a bit, maybe talking about the the general problem with liberal freedom, and then we can ask uh, old Dr. Carl for his opinion. So I think what, at least for me, the IWW and the Panthers and so many other examples reveal is that uh, liberal freedoms are ideas that people like to hold dear, and they like to talk about them being universal, and maybe people even genuinely believe that, right? They believe that all sides should be heard, etc., uh, but when push comes to shove in the actual day-to-day -day realities of politics, uh, we learn that those kinds of notions of freedom don't really hold in a political economy that is built, you know, for the advantages of some people and the disadvantage of others. So the presumptions to ideals of equality in freedom, bourgeois freedom, don't make sense if your entire society is built around trying to make sure that people are not equal, <laughs> trying to built around keeping people in unequal situations. Uh, I don't know. Anything else you want to say about liberal freedom before we ask Marx for some alternative? Yeah, I mean, I think we could also probably draw out a little bit too how how this um, how liberal freedoms are also like racialized um, in some pretty yeah. serious ways, right? I mean, it's it's very obvious with the Black Panther Party, right? Like, um, of course. Um, course republicans would get like nervous when um when when uh black people with some very radical ideas start carrying guns um of course like that's the time they'd pay attention right because that's like an actual threat to um the status quo or it could be um and you know the same thing with the iww but like in a different way right um uh in the case of the iww it, it, it's it's racialized in a in a strange like a, a way that's a little bit more foreign to our particular way of thinking about race right now but like it's it, you know, and then it would have been about um, uh, immigrants coming from Europe 
rather than um, uh, black people, which, you know, there's way different dynamics going on there and stuff. But all that to say is that like when when the idea of whiteness is questioned um, by some kind of force, that's when those freedoms break down. Yeah, there is also a really interesting case if you want to bring those together of um, I mean, there's probably lots of cases, but the one that always comes to mind for me is uh, George Washington Woodby, who we've talked about on this podcast before. He oh, right. was, yeah. Um, yeah, a black pastor who was the sole black delegate to the Socialist Party um, USA's conventions in, I forget, the early 20th century. But anyway, um, he himself got involved in a bunch of free speech fights and worked with the IWW in California on them like they showed up for him and vice versa. Uh, and he kept ending up in jail for a bunch of reasons, but not least because he was a black socialist saying that people should be socialists and uh, mm-hmm. he got like kicked out of his church and everything else. So anyway, there's a lot of really interesting ways in which the the bridge between those things are not uh, too far. But I mean, you're absolutely right that um, anyway, absolutely right that the, the history of racialization is bizarre. But the minute you question whiteness in particular is when you get in big trouble. Yeah, exactly. All right. What does Mark's guy have to say about this? That's a great question. <laughs> that is a great question. Um, he has a few things to say. Uh, a lot of different places to start. Uh, as I mean, he wrote a lot of stuff, so you could start a lot of different places. But let's start with the Communist Manifesto, because that's the thing that I like the most. So in the Communist Manifesto, this is in part two, in case you're playing the home game, <laughs> in which you have a, bu- <laughs> a big a big Karl Marx book in front of you, and you're following along as we quote these things. <laughs> and a big bingo um, sheet. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Um, okay, so this is what Marx has to say about freedom in um, in the man- in the manifesto. Marx is mostly talking about uh, the freedom of property, but he thinks like that idea about bourgeois ideas about property like end up bleeding out into all these other like ideas of freedom in society. So this is what Marx says: Don't wrangle with us as long as you apply to our intended <laughs> abolition of bourgeois property the standard of your bourgeois notions of freedom, culture, and law. Don't wrangle with us is the funniest thing that Karl Marx could possibly have said. Um, <laughs> anyway, so so he's okay. What do don't, you think? Don't, sorry, what do you think the German word for "don't wrangle with us" is? That's a great question. I wish I knew. So <laughs> Marx is saying, "Don't wrangle with us as long as you think, uh, as long as you want to apply bourgeois ideas to our abolition of bourgeois things. Don't bother with it." Your very ideas are about the outgrowth of the conditions of your bourgeois production and bourgeois property, just as your jurisprudence is but the will of your class made into a law for all, a will whose essential character and direction are determined by the economic conditions of the existence of your class. Okay, so I mean, what Marx is getting at here is is pretty clear. First of all, don't wrangle with him. Second of all, um, <laughs> all of these ideas about freedom that we have when it comes to um, our entire society they um are all premised off the um you know bourgeois interests right <laughs> bourgeois production bourgeois property um and uh the the freedoms that uh, surround those things are all codified into law by you guessed it the bourgeoisie so like um if we're gonna abolish the um private property if we're gonna if we're gonna do this big class war then uh, we can't maintain these like uh, these silly bourgeois ideas of freedom because uh, they're going to weigh us down. Don't even bother wrangling with us if you think these things. <laughs> yeah, I mean, there's also a sense in which uh, the ideas that we have are reflections of the societies we live in. Um, mm-hmm. There's stronger and less strong ways of saying that in Marxism. But I think the basic point is really enough that 
if you live in a society that is unequal, you should at least be a little bit cautious about your so-called common sense because it's built out of an, an unequal society. And right. I think that's really helpful when talking about bourgeois notions of freedom, culture, law, et cetera, as Marx talks about, because these are all things that uphold that uh, order of injustice. I mean, there's certainly a lot you could say, right? Maybe some bourgeois notions of freedom are better than, better than others or something like that. It's not like everybody agrees. Uh, but I think Marx is absolutely right to at least make us question the the relationship between the societies that we're all formed by and the kind of ideas that we just take for granted. Right. Yeah. Okay. So that's like uh, the the connection between uh, the point of this this quote though is right is to map out just what you just said the that that uh, that production um, and private property um, are mapped on directly to these other ideas of freedom right so um, that's interesting that's a good kind of note to stick in our head a good flag uh, for us I think what's uh, what's interesting though is that in other places Marx has actually articulated um, maybe more about what freedom looks like. For him and i think that's actually pretty fascinating um mm-hmm. so this comes from another uh, another book that marx wrote called the german ideology uh one of my faves um anyways in this one marx is talking a little bit more positively or a little bit more like explicitly about like uh and like what personal freedom kind of like looks like or like what what the conditions are for personal freedom and it's it's uh, mm-hmm. interesting it's a way that marx doesn't often talk in in some of the more political writings Um, So in the German ideology, Marx writes this. Only in community has each individual the means of cultivating his or her gifts in all directions. Only in the community, therefore, are personal freedoms possible. In the previous substitutes for the community and the state, etc., personal freedom has existed only for the individual who developed within the relationships of the ruling class and only insofar as they were individuals of this class. All right, this is cool. So personal freedom, we all think we have it, but guess what? Only the rich have it. <laughs> only the people who, uh, only the bourgeois uh, class has it. Because uh, you know, if if you want to be a painter, you want to be a sculptor, you want to be a shoemaker. I don't know. <laughs> you want to learn how to play <laughs> the guitar. So you want to you... be a shoemaker? <laughs> uh, well, yeah, you better be. In the ruling class, <laughs> um, but like you know, all these things, right? You can only really follow the passions of your personal freedom if you have the means by which you can do so, right? The the personal freedom here means like if you have money where you can like take a lot of time off work to pra- practice playing guitar rather than working, or whatever, <laughs> practice making shoes rather than working. <laughs> <laughs> I've been working in the shoe factory all day. I don't I don't have time to make yeah, shoes yeah. at home. <laughs> Uh, apologies to the the shoemaker caucus that listens to this podcast. I'm sure they're all going to be very upset. A lot of angry emails. <laughs> yeah, that's right. But but what's cool here is that only in community, when uh, people all have sort of like the ability to um, you know rely on one another in the economic sense, in the productive sense, uh, can people actually cultivate their own gifts um, when they're socialized to you know have a society where um, uh, only the ruling class doesn't have enough time to uh, spend like exploring what they actually want to do. I, you know, okay, this is this is like maybe a, a more banal way of thinking about it. But like, I was thinking about when I was in college and I was trying to decide what major I wanted to be, and <laughs> I picked one. I picked like uh, I picked majors like, and I changed them constantly because I had no idea like what I really wanted to do, and there was like really no structure set up for me 
to like understand what I wanted to do. And I just kept picking <laughs> things until I found something until I graduated basically. And um, I guess like, it's just like so bonkers. There's not even like really a space for that in, in the, in the present, you know, culture, like what, what space do you have if you're not, uh, if you're not like wealthy and you have time to kind of like figure it out for yourself to really figure out like what it is like you like and you're like you want, that you want to do and that you're good at. It's so mm-hmm. weird. <laughs> that's like the way that we have, you know, that that's the way that we've just kind of like done it. That's the way we're going to keep doing it, that people don't really have the time to even like know what they like um, before they pick, you know, accounting or something. Uh, yeah. in college. <laughs> that's such a profoundly sad idea. The more that I think about it. Yeah, for sure. Um, the text that this is from also the German ideology has the, uh, the famous quote that people like to pull out of it where, um, I haven't committed it to memory, but the, the way it goes is something like, uh, under communism, like you could be, you could go fishing in the morning, you could go do some theory in the evening, you could, I don't know, do a different job, um, in the afternoon without ever becoming a a fisherman or a theorist or whatever that you'd have the freedom to be able to, uh, explore these different parts of yourself under communism. And I think that's really interesting too, right? That Marx isn't actually against having a sort of personal expression of freedom or like individuality or personality. Um, It's rather that he thinks capitalism is in fact against those things, even though it pays lip service to them in these bizarre kind of ways with like inconsistent ideas about who deserves freedom or where it should be applied and that sort of thing. Yeah, totally. I mean, like, how could you possibly be free in capitalism? Because like most of your day is going to be spent um, making sure you can pay your rent and making sure that you have like electricity and making sure you've got food and like clothes. You know, that's that's not freedom. That's just like (laughs) it's it's freedom only for people who have the means to to afford freedom. Right. And uh, right. It sucks. Yeah, I think, too, um, this uh, idea in Marxism is good to talk about, that there is a real space for freedom in Marxism. Um, But one also has to be careful not to overinflate it. Like, uh, it always really bothers me to hear the, like, fully automated space communism rhetoric, Mm. uh, because it's basically like, what if we all had, like, extremely bourgeois freedoms, but, like, in the future, and we could all just sort of consume whatever we wanted. and the reason I dislike it is not because I don't want to be able to enjoy whatever our society can produce, but because any kind of socialism that would ever be achieved in my lifetime, especially uh, would not be a utopic fully automated system. Uh, If we know anything from the history of actually existing (laughs) socialism and communism, it would be one where probably a lot of the freedoms that you enjoy right now would have to be restricted in certain ways so that you could really uh, balance out the scales and allow other people to have some freedoms uh, and think a little bit harder about, you know, what freedom of speech means, for example. Um, is it really, is it, are you really more free uh, if you can say whatever you want, or are you uh, more free if you live in a society where you know that people won't be saying things that are racist, right? These are uh, questions that I think the history of Marxism forces us to ask, and it impinges on liberalism, and it also impinges on certain kind of utopic visions of socialism that I think are, I don't know, they leave behind all the lessons that we've learned from how hard it is to actually pull this off. Yeah, totally. Um, we don't need to get in in depth into the uh, luxury space communism stuff too, but uh, something that I think is actually really problematic is kind of along the lines of what you're saying, but some of the idea is 
to that too is like that you don't have to change your your patterns of consumption which i think is extremely problematic right. as well um be, because like you know the the idea in some of in some of those ways of thinking i don't want to like put anyone on blast particularly because i haven't prepared any specific ideas but <laughs> it's that like you know it's it'd be too hard at this point to rearrange uh like consumptive desires so instead we should just rearrange production and like we'll just keep on consuming like we consume but like how about you don't because <laughs> like <laughs> it, it's such a problem to do that for a lot of reasons i mean like environmental reasons for sure but um uh, but but also like uh, you know if if marxism isn't really calling into question like um know what actual needs are or or what mm -hmm. actual freedoms are are um you know more necessary than others and like what are you doing I, it seems it just seems yeah. like a it's a, such a self-reflective piece that's missing from that type of discourse yeah no i i totally agree well uh let's think about a place where all the stuff actually matters and when i like to do that i always think about cuba in particular <laughs> and What's so great about Cuba is we can talk about Marxism and Christianity at the same time because of a longtime friend of the show who's never been on it. But um, it's kind of one of these one way friendships. We really like him. He probably doesn't know that we exist. Uh, <laughs> Fry Beto, the Dominican Catholic priest from Brazil. Uh, we talked about actually these thoughts a long time ago, like I think back in February or something of this year, which feels like a thousand years ago. But uh, <laughs> it's still good and it's good in this context. Um, so we promised we we're going to talk about Christianity and Marxism. Um, listen, we're going to talk about both of them at once uh, via Beto. And here we go. So in an interview earlier this year, Fry Beto was asked, uh, what do you say to people who say that in Cuba there isn't any freedom? And Beto says, I always say to these people and their employees, what freedom do they have? Presuming the employees of somebody asking that question who doesn't live in Cuba. In Cuba, people have freedom, but not in the capitalist sense, with a small minority who have freedom from everything and the majority who do not have the freedom to live in decent conditions or to put their children in school to have good treatment uh, of their health or uh, the ability to move around the world. In Cuba, there's no individual tourism, but if a cultural group needs to travel, the state itself finances the trip. Everything has to have a social meaning. This is correct. In my country, which is Brazil, only a small minority has the possibility to travel and the majority are still unable to move even internally. Um, I think what's so great about this quote is uh, Beto is, is basically putting in a much more digestible form all the stuff we were just talking about with Marx, right? That uh, what kind of freedom exists under capitalism and what kind of freedom exists under socialism. And I think what he's really helping us see is that in Cuba, it's not the case that there isn't freedom. It's the case that freedom looks different because it has different priorities. Um, it has different interests and uh, it's understood to be a collective project and not an individual one. And at least for me, I mean, there's good Marxist reasons to think that, but it's always like, why does Fry Beto, a Catholic priest, think that? And I think that's suggestive that, you know, maybe there's something in Christianity that's also... Uh, you know, I don't think guarantees that you're going to have a good idea of freedom, obviously, because a lot of Christians have bad ones. But uh, there are lots of resources in Christianity that point you to a more expansive and more collective horizon when we think about freedom. And I think Beto just kind of like exemplifies all that together. Yeah, I think that's a good point. I mean, we could spend a lot more time talking about the weird the like theologies of individualism within Christianity. Uh, but let's not. Um, it's a it's a it's an it's a topic for another time. It's a topic for another episode. 
Um, <laughs> but so to steer myself away from this jumble of words I've just started saying, let me read another quote from Fry Beto about socialism. <laughs> Good. Socialism can be thought of as a system of material abundance for all as they did in Eastern European socialism. Today, it's recognized as a mistake, but we have to think of socialism as a spiritual abundance. That is, even if there are difficulties, people will understand that the difficulties are for everyone, which are caused by the fact of socialism coexisting with a world competition, selfishness, exploitation, that is, a capitalist world. And from there, you find ways to overcome these ideas until you read, until you discover that in socialism, as the word affirms, social rights are above personal rights, but in which personal potentialities can also develop without putting contradiction between one and another. It is much more humanizing, much more loving, above all a way attending to this fundamental desire of all of us, which is to conquer happiness. Um, <laughs> conquer happiness is a funny phrase, but this is good. Um, what Fred Beto is saying here is really interesting, right? And it does kind of speak to the religious elements of socialism um, that I think um, you get in some of Marx's writing, but uh, Beto puts it in a way better way, <laughs> um, right? Mm -hmm. Marx has the idea of species being about this like whole sense of uh, humanity as like a, as a coherent sort of thing. But uh, Beto has it in a, in a more uh, a way that makes more sense and is less German, um, right? That everyone <laughs> understands that uh, it might be difficult uh, because we can't all have, you know, we all can't have luxury space communism or whatever. We all can't drive uh, a Tesla and have a thousand pizzas every day. But uh, we understand like those shortcomings, um, those problems are because of, you know, other other things, the selfishness of the world, exploitation, capitalism, etc., but um, but I like the idea, though, that like, you know, in socialism, it's like you just get it right. You get that everyone's rights are really more important than just your own. And uh, yeah, I don't know. It's a cool there's a cool spiritual quality to those things that I think uh, is worth thinking about more. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think so, too. And I think, too, it encourages us to think more about um, Christianity's expansion of the idea of freedom too, right? Like, like you said, there's a lot of ways that Christians have contributed to individuals' notions of freedom, and someday we'll talk about those. But it's also like Christianity has a lot of weird ideas about freedom, and many of them are definitely not uh, individualist, or they they sort of uh, oppose individualism. Um, better to think is sort of exhibiting one, but I always think about like, uh, I don't know, there, there's a lot of notions in Christianity of freedom that can be problematic, but uh, nevertheless sort of point freedom to you're only truly free if you're living a, a, a sort of a godly life, if you will, which is to say you're only free if you're living in accordance with um, whatever the, the good that God wants for the world or a just kind of way of living. And of course there's lots of reactionary ways of interpreting that um, no doubt about it, but I think if you understand Christianity as a, a paradigm for thinking about right relationships and really doing justice in the world, then that also changes the way you think about freedom, that you only really live freely if you feel like you're living in a society where there is justice and there is uh, peace and those sorts of things. And it seems to me that socialism helps uh, to achieve those Christian ideas of freedom, too. Like, you're not more free if you just have the ability to do whatever you want. You're more free if you have the ability to do the good or to do what's right. And, uh, you know, I always think of, like, an example of um, if you're, like, when I was a little kid, I went to go touch a really hot stove. And my mom was like, don't do that because you're going to burn your hands. And I did it anyway because I had the freedom to do it, I guess. And I burnt my hand. And the big question is, like, 
when my mom is telling me not to burn my hand, is she uh, impinging on my freedom by taking away my freedom to hurt myself? Uh, I don't think so, right? Like, this is a, a prohibition that's actually trying to help me lead a life where I'm free from the harm of burning my hand uh, and free to live a life where I'm healthy and, and don't have to worry about a burn. Um, it's a, a small example, but I think Christianity and socialism both kind of get us thinking in that direction, right? What, what kind of... Uh, limitations and opportunities do we have to affirm if we really want to lead a life that's free to be healthy with ourselves and with one another. Um, and at least for me, I think what's great is Christianity can set you on a path to thinking about that stuff, but sooner or later you will have to ask weird questions about society and production. And that's where socialism is kind of a, um, a necessary thing you got to engage. Yeah, that's right. This is, I guess a weird, left field tangent but I, that's all we do on this podcast i think um <laughs> i remember this one time i was in this uh i was in this uh it was a class in college about the synoptic gospels and we were reading through the book of matthew and there's this part in there where jesus is just like um he's talking about all of the unrepentant cities and how like they're all going to go to hell and i remember in the class mm -hmm. like we were talking about this and the the um the professor was like okay what do you think about jesus though condemning the entire city and everyone in the entire in the class was like no this is not good you cannot do this jesus please because <laughs> you know all of us like uh very evangelical christian college students were just like losing it that jesus could like uh send an entire city to hell just because like most people there are bad or something um mm -hmm. and anyways it was a really funny moment because like you know that's that's not how any of us like silly evangelical college kids thought about um about salvation or christianity or even like politics right um we we think of them as completely individualistic right like as long as i'm doing the good things and i'm having a very personal relationship with jesus and i'm doing the right things politically or whatever everything's chill but uh there's this like this maybe maybe it's not untapped but for me it still is an untapped um power in like the idea of like collective sins that like uh, uh -huh. like you know you're culpable for the society that you live in even um even though it might be a hard thing to to understand yeah i think that's right um well let's bring this all the way back to harper's magazine and how we're gonna get there i'm not sure i haven't planned it uh but i'm gonna say some words and maybe they'll end up making a connection all right. Don't so we're wrangle with us. How, That's what I'm going to say. Yeah, don't, don't wrangle, wrangle with us. You think that you're getting wrangled with, but you don't even know what it means to be wrangled with. Uh, not like the IWW, not like Karl Marx. Um, I, uh, I mean, I think like in any case, I guess what, what I find really valuable about thinking about Marx and Beto and, and these other kind of more expansive ideas of freedom is that it stops you from saying ridiculous things like my, uh, my freedoms are being attacked because a teen with a, a, a skateboard avatar is uh, saying that I should eat a butt on the internet, right? <laughs> like um, the, it, it stops you from having ridiculous ideas like that. And it also encourages you to think of freedom as something that um, isn't something that you like protect by publishing an open letter, but something that you have to fight for by building a society where you can actually live in it. And that is not the kind of thing that it seems like this Harper's essay is really trying to build. Yeah, totally. I think this Harper's essay is mostly worried about uh, being made fun of on the internet by teens, just like you said. <laughs> um, <laughs> right? Uh, Boner Guy 420 is out there, and he is dunking on David Brooks <laughs> every day, and David Brooks has had enough of it. 
Um, but yeah, he's that's tired right. of it. All you, all he wants to do is is finally say the one racist thing that'll get him canceled, and he wants to survive it. <laughs> that's right, and we can't let him. We just we can't let them no. at all. That's right. Oh man, uh, 400, 400 Twitter teens uh, wanted to go to jail um, to tell David Brooks to eat a butt. <laughs> that's right. Um, okay, so I guess in conclusion, bourgeois freedom. It's not great. That's right. <laughs> what a strong, resounding, forceful conclusion. The the IWW soapbox would be proud, I think. <laughs> uh, if I was in the IWW, I would sing a song about it, though. Um, but I won't <laughs> do that. I won't do that for this podcast because I don't want to be canceled. That's right. So uh, the best part about doing a podcast is um, if you want to cancel us, uh, you have to if you want to cancel me, you have to email Matt. And if you want to cancel Matt, you have to email me and we'll never cancel each other because we both hold the the key to the other's cancellation. So it's a mutually assured <laughs> cancellation. <laughs> That's right. All right. This podcast is now over. <laughs> it's canceled. Thanks for listening to The Magnificast. If you like what you heard and you don't want us to be canceled, you can support us on Patreon at patreon.com slash The Magnificast. You can find us on Twitter at The Magnificast. You can email us at themagnificast at gmail.com. We have a Facebook group that we haven't posted in a long time called The Magnificast Basement, but it's still around. Uh, Let's see. What else can I say? Nothing. Our music is by Amori Armstrong, and our outro is by the Illogical Spoon. See you next week. Heaven come to earth and there won't be no church We'll meet down by the riverside There we'll swim with all creation Never get tired, never bored Don't worry, someday There'll be no dam between us and our Lord Jackson, keep your hoods up Keep your hoods up And you stay up late Jackson, you keep your hoods up, well you keep your hoods up, and you stay up late, oh don't mind, a cold night, but we might